Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine Podcast Radio. You're about to listen to an episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. Do you follow the pack or challenge the status quo? Join Ted as he explores how to succeed by going against conventional wisdom. You'll hear leaders in technology and security tell stories about how they achieve their success by doing things differently. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. Welcome, everybody, to Tech Done Different. I'm your host, Ted Harrington, and with me here today is our special guest and a friend of mine, Nicole Little, the Senior Manager for Security Governance and Content Protection at Disney. Nicole, I'm so pumped to have you here. Thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me on. So we've obviously both spent our fair share of time in the in the security community. Every year at DEF CON, we're always meeting up to hang out out there. And you and I were chatting the other day about the security implications around Web3, and I, I wanted to have you on the show. I know that's an area of interest for you. I wanted to maybe start there and just, just talk about that. So I guess the first two questions would be, for our audience who doesn't understand what Web3 is, maybe you could quickly define that You know, in the... In the sort of highest level way we can. And then let's talk about what you think the number one security challenge is in this space. So for those of your listeners who may be unaware when it comes to the versions of web, uh, you may have even heard of web 2.0 and now we have web 3.0. So the concept of web 2.0 is mainly focused on what you would understand the current internet to be, services and third-party intermediaries that assist in those services. It's all fairly interconnected internet, and it's it's all fairly standardized through protocols, uh, regulations, requirements, things like that. The concept of Web 3 is supposed to be essentially an evolution of Web 2. What's the next big step for human use of the internet, this interconnectivity. The main focus there is on decentralization, which hopes to build kind of a trustless environment, a trustless large-scale ledger that creates a public record of transactions. So it's easier for users to take governance over or take ownership over a large-scale enterprise or any type of agreement but you'll mainly hear things referred to as Web3 now to move away from the systems of Web2, where we previously were dependent on services and intermediaries. Web3 hopes to bring some of that ideal elimination of intermediaries and services away and bring that back into the consumer's control. Love it. Okay, so let's talk about, maybe maybe let's start around cryptocurrency because that is the use case that maybe most people are familiar with, even though most Americans probably still have no idea what Bitcoin is. But I think probably most people who listen to a show like this are, are familiar with, probably are, have invested in cryptocurrency themselves. So let's talk about the security challenges as, as we see them around Web3. And let me ask you about some of the things that are happening right now. Obviously, not not a happy time in cryptocurrency right now. Everything's everything's tanking. There's talk of maybe a, a recession in cryptocurrency, which would be the first of its kind in that space. But one of the things that's really interesting is we see the idea where exchanges and things like that are uh, halting withdrawals and, and things of that nature. Exchanges are getting attacked. How should people who are buying cryptocurrency, but not necessarily putting it into cold storage where they're controlling themselves offline. How should we be thinking about the security risks of holding currency in that way? 
So one of the, the issues that I'm here and there familiar with, I, I don't put a lot of time or money into cryptocurrency while I understand it and I understand its values here and there. I myself just can't bring myself to participate in it because of some of the security gaps. And also, I, I don't see the full value of the technology as yet. As technologies emerge and as things kind of grow from a natural point as new learnings come along, eventually a piece of technology in and of itself has meaning. And that's when I feel like it's it's a better point to interact with and kind of take part in that technology. And I don't believe cryptocurrency or really any of the systems kind of tied into the blockchain are at the point yet where they can kind of exist as a technology outside of needing to encourage people to use it or incentivizing people to use it. So right now, cryptocurrency only really functions because there's incentivization to perform the backend calculations to confirm value and the validity consensus for contracts being used on the blockchain. If you don't have any kind of monetary, in some form, incentivization within that system, I'd say nine out of 10 interactions on the blockchain themselves will fall off. Like it, it, there's no reason to participate in that because why put your time, electricity and compute power into something that you get nothing back from so that somebody else's contract can be processed. So until it becomes something where it kind of self exists, it's always going to have essentially an obstacle ahead of it for it being something that's reliable and what I would consider secure. It's, it's got a ways to go before it's not susceptible to some of these shifts like you mentioned with the, the market crashes, because cryptocurrency itself is not always necessarily tied to a physical value. So like your standard currency systems tend to be tied to actual assets somewhere, Fort Knox, a bunch of gold, some other precious mineral or a commodity that can be physically interacted with and used in another form. Cryptocurrency doesn't have that. You can tie it to a stable coin, which is then tied to a physical interaction, but now you've just created an intermediary and that kind of eats away at the purpose of having decentralization. So kind of in that whole scope, it's cryptocurrency is applying technology to a system that exists and functions pretty effectively. So it's not really bringing any new benefit. If anything, it incentivizes other groups to misuse it because it's still such an emerging technology. So that's why you see so many cryptocurrency scams going on, or you'll see malware requiring cryptocurrency because in their minds, they think it's untraceable or difficult to trace. So it's in and of itself kind of surrounded by security threats. Uh, it's, it's a little fiddly to work with. So you end up having to deal with human laziness of, I have a wallet. Am I using a enough security around this wallet to ensure somebody can't easily steal it from me. When you're doing these transactions, if you're on a vulnerable network and you, or a chain and you don't know it, then you could lose all the value that you put into it and then some. So it's, it's all a security concern. Um, I, I hate to be such a naysayer, but that's kind of where it sits for me at least. Well, I mean, I don't think that it's unreasonable for a security person to recognize the security concerns with an emerging technology. I mean, that's what we do, right? So when we think about, uh, it's interesting when people talk about cryptocurrency and the sort of common discussion about it is around the 
the way that it can deliver anonymity, right? We can we can obtain and share currency without any government or anyone really knowing who's using it. But the average user probably doesn't use it that way, right? They're signing up for accounts on exchanges where you have to actually verify identity, associate a bank account with it. So from a, if we take aside the use case, but we talk about just the security aspect of it, does that, is that a security improvement or is that an inferior security that now we're taking this thing that was designed to be decentralized and anonymous and essentially organizing it around a company? Yeah, so I think it's a security improvement because the more information you have and the more accountability that's built in, the stronger your framework is to have a secure environment or if something does happen, you have the pieces in place that allow you to work backwards towards whatever it is you need to unravel. But it also goes almost straight in the face of the concept of decentralization and web three, because you're, you are having to centralize things. You're having to create the intermediaries who will do the KYC checks to the point where it becomes acceptable with a financial institution. It's one of the, the biggest issues now kind of in this space is the fighting ideologically between centralization and decentralization in trying to apply blockchain, web three, even NFTs against a security model. Because security, you want everything to be consolidated and essentially governed by policies that are set out based on best practices and known information, known actors. But when it comes to decentralization, the kind of backbone of that ideology is it's everybody out there. It could be 30 bad guys to 4,000 good guys who have all intents and purposes. They want to do something good with it. So it's trying to balance those two out. And it's even in that concept, it's very flawed because every blockchain in and of itself is a centralized system. You can't talk between a Solana transaction and an Ethereum transaction. You have to have a bridge or a common standard for those two things to meet. So there, there's no concept that you can really enforce when it comes to decentralization. Because if that's if anything that's truly decentralized, you're essentially just screaming garbage at each other and other systems. And there's no way of guaranteeing that the other system understands and will accept your garbage because you don't have an agreed upon standard. So it, it's, it creates kind of a, a round robin in and of itself of you want it to be secure, but if you're going to have it secure, it can't be decentralized. Now, you mentioned earlier that uh, as you were defining Web3, and I quickly jumped into the cryptocurrency aspect to it, uh, and you said that you don't spend a lot of your own time, effort, and money there. What aspect of Web3 are you most interested in and excited about? Where's the, where's the hotness in Web3 right now? To be honest, I think Web3 in general is its own, the hotness, just because I, I don't even think it still fully exists. It's still kind of being teased out. Right now, I spend a lot of my time applying both security and intellectual property protection to the concept of licensing and creating NFTs. And this has been really big within the entertainment industry because you have so many artists who, rather than working within this larger machine that kind of passes and eventually filters their creative works through that final lens of whatever that company is, they now have the ability to find ways to both monetize and deliver their content in a meaningful manner out to consumers and out to their fans. While that's 
such a good use of Web3 and any of the decentralization and essentially self-ownership in the blockchain space. When it comes to a large-scale company in the, the media industry or really any other industry that would be licensing an asset, it's incredibly difficult to apply these two philosophies of decentralization and intellectual property licensing. So understanding it's, it's a multifaceted problem, really. How do you clearly communicate to the, the user or the purchaser? In many instances, if you're buying something that is a licensed image of a character, design, whatever, the fact that it's licensed, you're not actually purchasing the actual JPEG, GIF, whatever it is, you're purchasing the license to view it. And that's really difficult to not only explain to your standard consumer, but then apply that to an NFT where NFT is essentially the certificate of ownership for something. And you're attaching it to whatever this visual or even audio, any kind of digital asset, you're attaching it there, but you don't own the thing that's in there. You only own the license to view it. So you're only purchasing, your NFT is actually the license, not the actual end content. And that's difficult to arrange mentally when you're discussing this with groups that are looking to use larger scale IP to kind of build the prestige of their their NFT portfolio. So I haven't heard NFTs, which we should quickly define as a non-fungible tokens for anyone listening. NFTs, I've always understood them as you described, right? The certificate of ownership of, you know, one of one, like you own the one thing. But what I'm hearing you describe is there's the one of one thing, you don't own it. The NFT is actually saying that you are one of many licenses allowed to view it. Similar. So NFTs can, they can show up in different formats based on the standard. They're all based on a standard that's associated with the blockchain that they would be minted on. Right now, the I guess the major standard that you'll see associated with NFTs is ERC-720 uh, and ERC-1155. 720 is a one-to-one -one, uh, minting and 1155 is a one-to-many. So if you wanted to do essentially a collection or an album of things, you would want to have an 1155 because you can have different things within there, a collection. But in a one-to-one, -one, it's this is one instance of a thing, and it's the only one instance. When you talk about platforms that are selling NFTs that are licensed in kind of like a large-scale drop or something like that, it's still a one-to-one -one instance, but it's a one-to-one, -one, here's the one instance of this specific hash, and we generated 10,000 hashes. So it's, it has uniqueness, but it's not as unique as, you know, this is the only, like, artists have had their hands physically on this. You've got a thumbprint right there in the clay. That's yours. So why, why even do this? Because I understood the value proposition of an NFT for a digital asset is to be able to say this thing that can be endlessly duplicated, you can prove you own the original one. So why have NFTs which can be endlessly duplicated to prove licensing? That's kind of the thing is I, I don't particularly think NFTs in, that, in the, the IP license space work because it falls into that, well, you only own the license to view this. You don't own the actual instance, even physically, you can have an NFT, a non-fungible token. I think the most common parallel that people make is baseball cards, especially older baseball cards. They're a limited run. They have very specific chemicals and inks that were used. You can identify this as one of however many printed on in this year at this place. 
So it, it has a lot of markers that tie the authenticity to that singular instance or existence of that card. When it comes to NFTs, really the only thing that ties it is that hash. If you don't know how to view the hash, then that value doesn't mean anything to you. Why not just copy the JPEG or whatever it is? But I, I think there's a lot of, unfortunately, as both with security and just technology in general, when it's talked about, you get a lot of excitement and abstraction, excitement over the technology and high level, high minded abstraction away from what the actual technology benefits and does just excitement that it exists. So you kind of get into that hype machine of what if I told you, you could own the only instance of this digital thing. That sounds great. And if it's in a small scale, like I'm the artist, I have nobody else working with me and I am licensed. I'm selling you this digital print that I have made. You have the only one. Security brain wise, I know that's still not true because I have the computer here. I like for me, it would be you pack the entire system that you use to build this up on, you know, FedEx it to the person who purchased it. Now they own the entirety of that creation. But when you start to license it. Explain that. Explain that part to me. So let, what's the security concern there that someone, how does someone defeat an NFT? Oh, it's, it's less of a security thing. It's just for me, it's, well, if I send you a digital asset and I say, you're the only person who ever own, will ever own this asset. How do you know that I'm not telling everybody that? So if I were a purchaser in that environment, for me, I, if I purchased it, I would ask, I've purchased this digital asset and now I need to have and be able to verify that I also own the machine that it was created on and any physical media that's associated with this so that I have the ability to guarantee I'm the only person who will ever have this instance. Or if somebody else got it before I did, I have the last instance. So what you're saying is that a lesser ethical artist could create a unique item and then sell NFTs to it multiple times. And the buyer wouldn't necessarily know unless they went and saw that duplicate item somewhere and then researched on whatever blockchain that was associated with the origin. Yeah. Okay. I see. I hadn't thought about that. Part of it is kind of tied into that security brain of, I assume there's always going to be somebody who recognizes this is an opportunity to get one over. And so that kind of creates this instance. That's why it's difficult when you talk about licensing NFTs, because you're already a step away from what the NFT represents as I have ownership and authenticity. Trying to explain that to the large scale consumer, not only do you not own the image that you think you own, you only own the license, but something could happen. And because of copyright law, contracts that went into place, that image could disappear completely from the internet. And now all you own is the license that you purchased. And it's really difficult to convince somebody else to buy that from you because it has no value. <laughs> so like all things, there is a security versus usefulness trade-off. Do we think that the usefulness of, we're talking about NFTs, so let's stay on this part of the topic. Is the usefulness of NFTs worth it in the light of security issues that exist? I honestly don't think so. With the NFTs themselves, it's a difficult environment for even people who are fairly experienced security-wise. It's a hassle to kind of get into the space, put real human money into a space where the value of that money is going to fluctuate 
like you can't even really track it. It fluctuates so intensely, especially when it's driven by public opinion, things like that. Somebody could say something about the blockchain you were participating on. And now your $30 is negative $40 in value. So like it's, it's fiddly to interact with, and then you still don't own the asset itself. And I think a lot of people who are familiar with technology will know, well, yeah, I could just right click that. And then the discussion of, yes, but I'll have the hash comes up and you're like, yeah, but who checks that? If, if you were wearing another metaphor that I heard trying to kind of convince me of the, the benefit of NFTs versus the security of putting your money and time and identity into the environments that you have to interact with to have purchase NFTs, they likened an NFT to if you have somebody who purchases only designer denim. And they purchase a pair of pants to find out, oh no, these are counterfeit. The other people who know about designer denim are going to know that these are counterfeit. Now they have no value in this pair of pants. That's how an NFT works, which uh, the metaphor itself doesn't entirely work because if I purchase a, a counterfeit NFT, yeah, I, I have a counterfeit right-clicked JPEG. If I purchase a counterfeit pair of Levi's, at the absolute minimum, I do have a pair of pants to wear. So that's kind of where the balance is, is it doesn't even, it, when you think about it as a risk assessment, purchasing anything in real life, I at least have my hands on something that has some kind of physical value. Online, who knows? You may not even get the NFT. You've seen so many what are called rug pull scams where groups will pop up. They'll have some interesting looking art or avatars that they're offering, and then they'll start to raise money in association with a token they've created because anybody can make a token. People put money into it, hoping to build this community and then build value back on their own investment. And then it hits a certain point of like maybe a million dollars. That group's gone. They don't exist anymore. How do you get that money back? So people have put their, their earnings and investment into that. And it's, there, there's no guarantee. There's very little regulation. Internationally, it's a nightmare trying to figure out where you can sell these things. China doesn't even have NFTs or blockchain. You have to call it something else. So anything that's sold within China is sold as a digital collectible because they can't even reference cryptocurrency or blockchain or NFTs. They have to all be something that's contained within their own essentially tech stack. So it's when it comes to kind of doing a risk assessment, not just straight security assessment, the, the risk assessment from like a licensing perspective, it's so high and there's so much work that goes into it that the idea of money left on the table, yes, that idea exists, but it might actually not be as much as the money you would spend trying to kind of get everything coordinated. So plus the platforms that are doing the minting and providing the backends for a lot of these NFTs, they're not security platforms. They're not experienced platforms. So they're coming into the market. They haven't even had security reviews of their platforms, but they're transacting in like financial spaces. They're interacting with people's personal identification. So that's another, that was one of the major security concerns that I raised is that's a lot of applications that we haven't done a security assessment on, and we're enticing consumers to come in to use this application, and we could be exposing them to massive data fraud. Well, you know, you're, you're preaching the choir here about why we should do security assessments on applications. I, I, <laughs> I have a dog in that race, so I'm, I'm with you on that. 
Well, this has been really uh, interesting. I feel like I've learned so much about this space today. Uh, as our time comes to a close, is there anything you want to leave our audience with? I don't know. I'm trying not to be like a, a super curmudgeon. I, I think technology can solve any number of problems, but I think relying on technology to save ourselves kind of makes us a little lazy and blinds us to some of the maybe more obvious problems. So I always like to try and encourage anybody, leaders, innovators, engineers to think about it and then have somebody who maybe doesn't particularly like you or your idea, have them listen to your idea. Because even if you don't like what they're saying, they may point out valid areas for you to consider in these technology spaces. It, sometimes you have to have somebody else that's a little pulled away to be able to see you know, some of the freckles and moles on your baby. Hmm. I like that. Yeah, getting that independent viewpoint and maybe even from someone who's doesn't <laughs> somebody who's not going to hold it back. Like right, right. Ask somebody who does who actively dislikes the technology that you're working with. Take a look at this. Can I convince you that this is a good technology? Maybe you can. Or maybe they even if they're not points where you're like that's valid, it may make you think of that's not valid, but I can think of another edge mirror parallel case that I should look into that I wasn't because I was dismissing that other non-valid edge case. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Well, Nicole, thank you so much for sharing some wisdom and, of course, your time here together today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, totally. For everyone listening, if you want to learn more about what Nicole's up to or the podcast itself, head over to tedharrington.com backslash podcast, and we'll catch you next time. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tech Done Different Podcast with Ted Harrington. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then share ITSPmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.